0: I'm Jamie Duguid, the assistant pastor here, and let me just say it's good to be back. I was away guest preaching and then on vacation uh, the last few weeks, and it's really great to see you guys again. Um, I will be gone next week, which is unscheduled. This last week, my grandmother went to be with Jesus, so I'll be at her memorial. I just wanted to let you guys know where I am. Uh, but this is a good passage for a sad times, so let's turn to God's Word together. Psalm 13. To the choirmaster, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open your word to us today, and we know that every heart has its own sorrow that others cannot see. Lord, I don't know what particular sorrow every person here may have brought with them, but you know. And so I pray that as we read and study your word today, and by your Holy Spirit, you would speak a word of comfort and encouragement to every single one here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just like last time I preached, I'm gonna start with an illustration that has the whole family in the car on a drive. Children, how many of you, when you've been driving with your parents in the car, and it's a long drive, have ever asked this question? Are we there yet? Of course, the answer is never yes, is it? If one is there, one no longer needs to ask the question. But I suppose it's always good to check. We weren't there 30 seconds ago, but what about now? And since we could always arrive at any moments, it's important to just keep checking in, isn't it? There's a slightly more mature version of the question. How long until we get there? This question has accepted that you're going to have to wait a bit. Uh, Of course, one still needs to repeat this question at regular intervals, doesn't one? How long now? How long now? I think for adults, it can sometimes be a little Difficult sometimes to be patient with children's questions, but hopefully we can at least understand. It can be really difficult to wait, can't it? Even for things that aren't really very important, but this question becomes extremely serious in the midst of suffering. Uh, in this psalm, we find David is the one who's asking, "Are we there yet?" How long, Lord?" You know, as we've been preaching through these psalms, um, I would group this together with psalms 11 through 17 as a group of seven psalms that are all David crying out to the Lord. Uh, And in some ways, they also unpack themes that were introduced in psalms 9 to 10. It's kind of a depressing set of psalms. I do realize that. I noticed that as I was planning services for this uh, summer that there's just not a lot of songs for some of these psalms just because they're kind of depressing. Uh, Last week in Psalm 12, we hear that the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. And in Psalm 14, the next one we'll get, there is none who does good. So be sure to come back next year for that one. Uh, And this psalm right in the middle of them really focuses on David feeling forgotten and distant from God. You know, these psalms, they seem to define a time when David's extremely isolated. He's surrounded by enemies, and it seems, it seems, I don't think it is, but it seems like he's the last person in the world who believes in God sometimes. And so, specifically, the call to David in our psalm today is to endure through his suffering, not just to suffer once or twice, but to endure through consistent suffering. That's what our psalm is all about today, and as we look at it, we're going to see three points. First, we're going to look at David's question. What does it mean that David can cry out, how long? Second, we're going to look at David's faith. How is he able to trust God in the midst of his sorrow? And finally, we're going to look and see how this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus. So point one, how long? How is David able to say this? And this is David's repeated question in the psalm, isn't it? How long is this going to last? How long, O Lord, will You forget me forever? How long will You hide Your face from me? David feels that God has abandoned him, that God is far away, that He's been forgotten about. David's mind is continually occupied with his distress. In verse 2, he says, how long must I take counsel in my soul? That just means talking to yourself, inside and have sorrow in my heart all the day. His concern is continual, it's a frenetic anxiety. I don't know if you've ever had an anxiousness like this, something where you can't stop thinking about it, where you obsess about it. Uh, where you try to draw up plans and strategies, but you can't scheme your way out of the problem, where there's no solutions or escape, and your mind just sort of keeps spinning like a cursor on a frozen computer. How long, says David, shall my enemy be exalted over me? Um, It's not just that David's suffering, but specifically that there's an enemy involved. We don't know exactly when David wrote this psalm, but it would make sense to think about his persecution by Saul. Uh, Certainly, that went on for a long time, David thinking he'd escaped and then getting betrayed by the people wherever he lived, and Saul coming after him again over and over and over. Um, It's this constant pressure and then also just the injustice of it, that this person with power and authority is an evil and unjust person. And who doesn't deserve to have that power, and there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to live with that injustice. David has had about enough of this, but he can't change it. He can't fix it. He has to sit under this threefold stress. God seems distant, his heart is weary with brokenness, and his enemy is gloating over him. So, what does David do? What can David do he cries out to God. He, he yells. He screams. Even if God should be shut up in heaven behind seven, seven sets of pearl gates, he's going to hear about it. He has to because David has nowhere else to turn. And so he says to God, consider and answer me. Well, I'd actually like to make that a little more literal. Look at me and answer me. You know, there is a polite roundabout and formal way to ask for something, and then there's the direct way. Kids, I'm sure a lot of your parents have tried to tell you how to be polite and not too direct when you ask for something. There's a way where you ask if it's possible, if you can get around to it, if you're not too busy, if you're not doing something else. I wonder if maybe if there was any way that, could you possibly do this for me? It would really be great. As per my previous email. Please, this is not that. And I don't think that David doesn't respect God. It's just that he's too desperate. He, he doesn't have the time to dress up his request in fancy formulas. No, he speaks to God directly. Look at me. Answer me. Lord my God, light up my eyes." The metaphor of God lighting up the eyes of someone means to give them life, to give them the sustenance and energy that keeps them from fading away. Maybe you know that, that dead stare that someone has where they're technically alive, but, but it doesn't seem like they're completely alive. David feels like he can't go on much longer. He's at the doorway of death. If God's going to save him, he better act soon. Otherwise, the victory of the enemy will be complete. Wrong and injustice will win out, and the wicked will rejoice when he is gone. It's as if David was saying, it's not just that I don't want to die. I mean, I do not want to die, but I just don't want them to have the satisfaction. It just makes it all the worse that I know they would love it if I died." That's the kind of people my enemies are. They, they find their joy in, in crushing righteous people. It's what gets them out of bed in the morning. God, don't let them have this. So this is David's complaint. How long? He's close to breaking. And so he cries out to the God who is his only hope. Let me ask you something. Is it okay for a Christian to call out how long?" Can we pray to God the way that David prays in this psalm? Or do you feel like you couldn't be co- possibly be comfortable saying to God, how long? Do you feel like you have to put a happy face on your prayers, that if you don't approach God in just the right way? If you don't flatter Him, or cajole Him, or bargain Him, or prove to Him how good you are, that He will get angry and not listen to you. Well, As Ryan said earlier, the book of Psalms is meant to teach us how to pray. It's it's God's own prayer book given to us. And so I think David's a model for us, a model for how we can approach God in prayer. And that means that we can say, how long, O Lord? It's not a sin, necessarily. So what does that mean for us? Well, first, I think it calls out a tendency we have to ignore or suppress negative emotions. A couple Sundays ago, Ryan Brad preached a sermon on suffering and the role of suffering in the Christian life. And so we know, right, that being a Christian isn't about being happy all the time. It isn't about pretending to have our acts together. It isn't about just keeping a stiff upper lip, keeping calm and carrying on. God can handle your emotions. Maybe you have people in your life who can't handle your emotions. Have you ever experienced that? People who react badly if you don't put up a front, where where you kind of have to manage your interaction with them and walk on eggshells all the time. Well, God is not like that. Your grief, your sorrow, your anger, your anxiety, God cares. You can bring them to him. And you can be honest with him about how it feels, even if you're not sure that the theology of how you feel is 100% correct. You know, it's a striking thing about the Psalms is that we so often find the psalmist saying something that he knows on some level isn't true. I mean, I mentioned this with Psalms 9 and 10, that David is going back and forth between uh, saying God doesn't forget the cry of the afflicted and asking God not to forget the cry of the afflicted. There's this gap between what he knows is true about God and his present experience. And maybe you've had a similar experience, some time in your life where your theology was really tested, where where what you've been told about God growing up, what you thought you believed, is shaken by, by trial or suffering or tragedy. Maybe you're in the middle of a trial like that right now. Maybe you think, you know, man, I come to church on Sunday and the pastor talks about how good God is. But if God is good, why did he let this happen? If God is good, why won't he fix this awful thing in my life? Maybe you feel like it's something you can't talk about with church people because it wouldn't be sort of the right Christian thing to say. Side note, by the way, if you're somebody who has the opportunity to give counsel to somebody who's going through suffering, uh, if someone who's struggling in this sort of way, and they say something that seems to question God's goodness to you, that maybe it doesn't sound like good theology, let me give you a caution. Don't jump right into questioning their theology immediately. I mean, it's true that there is such a thing as cursing God in our affliction, we're told that Job, for instance, doesn't do that, although he, he says a lot of things. But cursing God is different than honestly expressing how difficult it is for you to believe in God's goodness right now. Psalms like this teach us that it's important to be able to speak that kind of pain, that struggle with believing. It's important to be able to express what it feels like when we feel we are forgotten, even if at the same time we know that God never forgets. Psalms like this teach us that that God cares. He he listens to His children even when the things that they have to say are hard or emotional. So, if, if you're in that position of counseling someone, consider that instead of immediately correcting someone's theology right at that moment, that person might first need you to listen to them, to show kindness and patience and compassion to them. The way God is patient with us when we complain to Him. Let's, let's try to be a church where people can talk about these kinds of things. And, and God is patient with us also even when we don't bring our complaints to Him in a perfect, sinless way. You know, sometimes, often, there is a lot of sin wrapped up in how we complain to God, and it's forgiven, praise the Lord. Um, but not all complaining is sinful. I don't think David's complaint here is sinful. I don't think that David's cry comes from his doubting God. When he says, will you forget me forever, I don't read that as an accusation, but of an honest expression of what it feels like. Actually, David's boldness and directness in addressing God comes from his faith. We're really in trouble precisely when we stop talking to God about something. Isn't that so often when a relationship is in trouble, when you stop complaining to the person? But David is not doing this. He is crying out to God. He's throwing himself on God's mercy because he knows that God can act and save. David could give up on God, maybe look for a different God or to his own power, but he does not do this. Instead, he brings his suffering to God. And what's more, he knows that what he's asking for is in line with God's will. He knows that God's promise that He will save His anointed King. We see that in other Psalms. We know that God cares for the poor and the afflicted, that God's angry with oppression. And there is such a thing as a a holy dissatisfaction with the world. Sometimes I wonder if we've become too comfortable with the brokenness of the world. Maybe uh, we should be crying out more often, but we've just sort of convinced ourselves, you know, this is just the way things are. So let me ask you, where where are you this morning? Do you need to hear this psalm? Are there areas in your life where you feel like yelling, how long? How long is this going to go on? Maybe you're enduring physical pain or sickness. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you have a broken relationship in your family, a relationship you know isn't okay, but but every time you try to fix it, the problems just go on and on. Maybe you have anxiety about something in your life, and you just can't stop these obsessive thoughts about it. Maybe you're lonely, and you feel forgotten. Maybe you've been persevering through some suffering so long that it feels like you're at the end of your rope. What should you do about it? cry out to God. He cares. He wants to hear about it. He will be patient with you. You don't need to express yourself perfectly. You can come to Him as a loving parent who listens to and comforts His children even when they are a mess. So, that's our first point. We, We can cry out to God, how long? Second point, we should have faith in the midst of trials. So, we've seen in the first four verses of this psalm that David is pouring his heart out to God. He's not holding back. He's being totally honest that he feels forgotten, that he feels like he can't hold on much longer. But then he comes to the last two verses. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because He has dealt bountifully with me. This is actually a common pattern for this type of lament psalm. The psalmist will pour his heart out, but he'll also give expression to what's true about God, his his faith. Actually, if you look at psalms five to six in different translations, you'll see that there's a bit of a difficulty about which verbs are past and which are future here. And that's because it's sometimes hard to tell which verbs are future and past in the psalms. But I think… the ESV gets pretty, pretty, pretty close to a good place here in the translation. There's two things in these verses that refer to what's already true, and two things which refer to the future. Uh, it's already true that David trusts in God, and it's also already true that God has dealt bountifully with David. But these verses about singing and rejoicing, I think, are in the future. While there are passages in the Bible that do talk about rejoicing in the middle of trials, Uh, David's looking forward to a kind of rejoicing that can't happen yet, something that can only happen after God has delivered him. But what David can do right now is trust in God. In verse 5, David says he trusts in God's steadfast love. This is a word that we brought up a lot in our our David study, hesed. Hesed. Sometimes translated mercy, sometimes kindness or loving kindness or steadfast love. It it really refers to the the kindness of God that sticks with us uh, even when the going gets most tough and even when we're at our most sinful. Uh, God's hesed is displayed through concrete acts of kindness to His people. David says in verse 6, because he has dealt bountifully with me, David knows God's past faithfulness before he got into this situation, and so he trusts in God's future uh, goodness. Uh, Even in the seeming hopelessness of this present situation, David hasn't forgotten who God has shown himself to be in the past. And because of his faith, David also has hope. He looks forward to the day when he'll be able to rejoice in God's salvation. Note the contrast that's drawn here. In verse 4, we hear about the wicked, and they're going to rejoice that David is shaken. Uh, That's what they rejoice in. But David expects to rejoice in the Lord's salvation. There's two joys here. There's, There's the joy of the worlds, which rejoices in oppressing and destroying others through might and power. And then there's the joy that rejoices in God and the salvation that he brings. David doesn't respond to worldly oppression with worldly tactics. He doesn't rely on his own power to bring down the enemy. Rather, he looks to find his joy in God. And because he worships a trustworthy and mighty God, he has a sure hope that God will bring him this joy. There's a paradox here, isn't there? David is both profoundly sorrowful and yet profoundly hopeful. He feels forgotten by God, but at the same time, he trusts in God. And this teaches us that, that true faith doesn't mean that we don't sorrow. While at the same time, sorrow doesn't cast out true faith. Living in faith always means living in a tension between what we believe and what we see, between God's promises and what we feel as our current reality. I mean, Hebrews 11 says this, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, we walk by faith, not by sights. We see the truth of this in this psalm. David gives full vent to the anguish of not being able to see God. He feels that God is distant from him. But at the same time, he expresses his trust in who God is. Although he can't see God, and he can't know what God's up to in his suffering, or when even God will put it to an end, he nevertheless trusts that God will act to deliver him. So, that's the second point. Despite his suffering, David trusts in God. But we can't just end with David today. Because if David had good reason to trust in God, how much more do we have a reason in Jesus? Jesus is God's definitive answer to David's question, how long? Maybe you remember the story of Simeon and Anna in the temple when the baby Jesus is brought to them, and we're told that they're waiting for the consolation of Israel. You see, Jesus is the one for whom Israel has been waiting this whole time. Finally, the time has come when God is going to set things right. And yet, in order to bring this salvation, Jesus is destined to suffer. In Jesus, God Himself enters into our lowly state, into the suffering of human existence and the oppression of poverty. Jesus has to take upon Himself human grief. In order to faithfully fulfill his, his commission. Jesus has to weep at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus mourns over God's wayward people, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've ga- I've, I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And we see the height of this at the Garden of Gethsemane, don't we, where Jesus, sorrowful and troubled at the trial He's about to go, Asking this cup might be taken from Him, sweats, drops of blood, and yet at the same time this sorrow is not without faith. He says to His Father, not what I will, but what you will. And then we see Jesus arrested, falsely accused, and condemned, beaten, and hung on a cross. But isn't the greatest sorrow of all when we hear Jesus say, my God, my God? why have you forsaken Me?" In order for God to answer David's question of how long, God's own Son must enter into that question. He must put Himself in the place where He can cry out to God. In His flesh, the Son of God suffers, not just physical torments, but the turning away of God's face, the feeling of being forgotten, by God. Jesus perseveres through that great emotional turmoil greater than we can ever know, and yet He perseveres by faith. Even when God seems distant from Jesus, Jesus still trusts in Him. He perseveres through His suffering. He entrusts His Spirit to the Father. His faith is perfect faith. It's so much greater than our own. Jesus trusts where we surely would have doubted, and His trusting is done in our place. We receive His obedience. He walks that dark path of the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might receive God's kindness. And how is Jesus answered when He asks the question, how long? Well, it's in the passage we read today when He cries out to God, why have you forsaken Me? Hebrews, in Hebrews 5, seven it says, in the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard for His godly fear. This, this is what the part of what the resurrection is. It's God answering Jesus' prayer, raising Him from the dead and crowning Him with glory and might. Jesus' faith in God is vindicated when He receives God's salvation. And we have our answer to our question as well in Jesus' resurrection. In Christ, our suffering is already conquered. We are raised with Him and given new life. What does that mean for us today? Well, again, Ryan, I think, preached a great sermon telling us about our suffering uh, in union with Christ, so we know that if we, if we uh, become one with Christ, then we'll suffer as He has suffered, but at the same time, paradoxically, that suffering is going to be a sign of the glory that God is going to give us. And it's in light of that future glory that we're enabled to persevere through suffering. This is the answer to the how long question. If we suffer now, it brings us closer to Jesus. And if we suffer now, we look forward to the day when our suffering will be no more and instead we'll receive God's glory. And that doesn't mean that we can't still cry how long, does it? After all, in Revelation, we see, Revelation 6, the martyrs crying out to God, how long? How long until Jesus is going to come back? Our hope of salvation shouldn't make us more insensitive to evils of sin and oppression. It should make us cry out all the more. But as we grieve, we grieve as those who have hope. We know that Jesus has defeated sin, death, and Satan once for all on the cross, and He's appointed a day when He'll put everything right. This world and its order is temporary. It's not going to last forever. So as we wait today for Christ's coming, as you seek to persevere through your suffering, as you cry out, how long? Remember the answer that God has given and will give in Jesus. In Jesus, you have a guarantee that God will not forget you, no matter how much it might feel like that. That there is going to be an end to suffering and death. How we will rejoice on that day. How we will sing with saints and angels when faith becomes sight and when we fully realize what it means to say, He has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that. In him, we see that you care about our suffering and that you have dealt with our sin. How We we pray that you would help us to persevere in our own suffering with the great hope that we have through Jesus. And we pray that you would keep our souls and guard us until that day when Jesus returns as we wait and cry out, how long? Until that happens. In Jesus' name, amen.